Hello, and welcome to the Murderosity Podcast, where we discuss all things murder, mayhem, the mysterious, and the macabre. I'm your co-host, Bob Hancock, joined on the other side of the pond by Rebel Roan. Rebel, how are you doing this week? I'm good. How are you? I can't complain a lick. This case has had me in fits all week. There's just so much going on with it. Oh, yeah. I do. I remember when I sent you a message that was like, I'm so far deep in the rabbit hole on this case. There there are so many rabbit holes to chase down. You just don't know which one's the right one and which one is even connected. So we'll have to dive deeply into that. Hopefully everybody here can follow along as well. Yes. And this is another ongoing case. So sometimes we, you know, don't have all of the information. This is one of those cases where it's not concluded yet, but it's still a really interesting dive to take. It also gives us an opportunity to move forward with these cases as information comes up. We'll be sure to keep you all posted. But this one yes. is this one. You might want to get out your cork board and your yarn and your your needles. <laughs> yes. All right. So it takes place in Folly Beach, South Carolina. That day was meant to be one of romance and happiness for 34-year-old Samantha Miller and her new husband, Eric Hutchinson, and it was their wedding day. So, Folly Beach, South Carolina, it was originally called Coffin Island. It was kind of a hideout for pirates and whatnot during that time. It's known for having a lot of shipwrecks and shipwreck diving out there, especially the Brig Amelia. It was occupied by Union forces during the Civil War because it was strategically located between Charleston and Fort Sumter. And because of the dense foliage there, that's how the island got its name. The Union soldiers called it Folly Island because folly was an Old English word for dense foliage. Now, to be honest, not a whole lot happened there from then till now. It's kind of a resort spot. Vacationers go there. The roads that they use are actually the old Union Army roads that have been there since the 1860s. Obviously, oh, so they're remained. real narrow. They, they, they are. It's, it's really, there's only like, there's 1,700 feet of boardwalk and whatnot in the area. It's not really a place that most people reside year-round. It's very, very much a tourist oceanfront type place. Sure. They, des- they describe themselves as part vacation destination, part artistic retreat, and part eclectic community but they love it the way that it is so not as much awesomeness as we usually get in a location but the thing with folly beaches is it's sandwiched between so many other historical sites of great import charleston being one of them and fort sumter being the other where the civil war started so it kind of just gets overshadowed by everything else gotcha so can you tell me a bit more about samantha and eric Yeah, so according to the obituary, Samantha was pure light and contagious love. Her smile said it all. She delivered peace, confidence, and laughter everywhere she roamed, and she never shied away from a vulgar joke or two. On April 28, 2023, Samantha and Eric spent the day with friends and family celebrating their love as they said, I do. After the reception, Samantha and Eric left in a golf cart decorated with a just-married sign driven by Eric's brother-in-law and nephew, who were in the front seats. Samantha and Eric were in the rear seats, which faced outwards. Just before they left, Samantha reportedly said to Eric, I want this day, this evening, to last forever. Meanwhile, 25-year-old Jamie Lee Komorowski was alleged to have spent the day bar hopping and spending time at different bars. 
Some of them were the Crab Shack, Snapper Jacks, El Gallo Bar and Grill, the Drop-In Bar and Deli, and Taco Boy in South Carolina. She was on her way to Folly Beach. She consumed beer, tequila, and did shots of liquor. Police would later test her blood alcohol level, and it was more than three times the legal limit of 0.261. So for our international listeners, you are pulled over in the U.S. and suspected of driving under the influence. You can be given a breathalyzer test, and you need to blow under 0.08. That's under the legal limit in most states. Some states are even lower, but 0.8 is the standard. And so for her to blow 0.261 is just, she was gone. She was definitely gone. So what happened next? So the golf cart headed down a road from the venue toward the Airbnb where they were going to spend their wedding night. The road had a posted speed limit of 25 miles per hour. Pomorowski was barreling down the same road in a rental vehicle, but at speeds of approximately 65 miles per hour. She slammed on the brakes, second striking the golf cart with such force that it sent the golf cart flipping over several times before it came to a rest 100 yards away. Eric suffered multiple broken bones as well as a brain injury. Samantha died of blunt force injuries at the scene of the crash. The other two occupants of the golf cart were also injured. So she she, she hit this golf cart with such force that it went 100 yards flipping and spinning it. The fact that she didn't kill all four of them seems almost miraculous to me. It, yes, definitely. How scary it must have been to see you see this car barreling towards you because as Samantha and Eric were facing outwards, they were facing the car that hit them. Yeah, there's there's no way that this wasn't the absolute most terrifying moments of their lives. Yeah. And when it's dark and you're seeing these lights coming, they're probably thinking, okay, they're definitely speeding. Not thinking that they're going to hit them until they're right on them. And by then it's too late and there's nothing you can do. They couldn't have jumped out. They couldn't have gotten away from this at all. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah. I remember being in car accidents where I, I knew it was coming, but it was too late to do anything. But I mean, I was protected in a vehicle. I wasn't exposed on a golf cart. I suppose I've just been fortunate, knock on wood, but the closest thing I've been to a car accident, I had someone back their boat trailer into a car of mine one time at a low rate of speed. So I've been really, really fortunate. Haven't had any big things like that. So again, I'm just trying to use my empathy on this one because I cannot imagine what they must have been through. Yeah. So at the scene, police stated they could smell alcohol on both her breath and her person. Pomorowski was asked on a scale of from 1 to 10 how intoxicated she was, and she said she was at an 8. Law enforcement had to assist her to stand as she was too unsteady and nearly fell down. and She was uncooperative and refused sobriety tests. So again, for our not American listeners, not U.S. listeners, A field sobriety test is something that law enforcement officers can ask you to partake in. You can refuse, but typically there are three very reliable, as they call them, field sobriety tests. The horizontal gaze, the walk and turn test, and the one leg stand test. Now, the issue with these is they were originally designed for when the blood alcohol content was 1.0. Now that they're a little bit different, they've found that they're not as accurate 
anymore. For example, the walk and turn test has been determined to be about 79% accurate, while the one leg stands about 83. The other problem with the parameters of these tests is they don't take into account someone's age or body weight or if they have any pre-existing conditions. I, for example, would very much struggle to do a one-leg stand because of my knee injuries. So they might think that I was when I wasn't. And this is done in conjunction with a breathalyzer to determine not only are they above the alcohol level in the blood, but are they impaired or not. So there is a bit of controversy in the use of field sobriety tests, but that's how we do it here in the States. Yeah. So she was arrested at the scene and charged with felony DUI resulting in death, two counts of felony DUI resulting in great bodily injury, and one count of reckless homicide. Pomorowski allegedly struggled with alcohol dependence, anxiety, and depression. Her lawyers asked her for her bond to be reduced so that she could enter a drug and alcohol rehab facility. Her bond was denied, and she was deemed a flight risk on August 1st, 2023. She was indicted on September 12th, 2023. So I watched several videos and interviews with this young woman. And this was about the only time that I saw any real raw emotion come out of her. When the judge denied her request, she broke down and was sobbing. Now, Lisa Miller, who's the mother of Samantha Miller, the deceased, She was able to address the court during this hearing, and she said that she didn't just kill my child. She killed all of us. After she was after she heard that the judge denied the reduction in bond, she stated that she was crying happy tears, that three months is nothing. I mean, it seems just like yesterday for us. Why should she get out and just go about their merry way, you know? And on this, I can really, again, sympathize with the victim's family. They've yeah, gone definitely. Through a, they've gone through a terrible tragedy, and this girl doesn't seem to be wanting to take any responsibility for what she did. Yeah, and she's very callous and very cold-hearted. It is, she is. It, this, this is a very entitled behavior that we keep seeing from her. And mm-hmm. as we go further in this case, not to spoil anything, but that picture gets painted much, much better. So was there anything else that came from the judge? Yes. The judge stated the state has until March 2024 to try this case. If that does not take place, the defendant is to be released on a $150,000 surety bond. She will be subject to electronic monitoring and house arrest. She is only to leave her home for a medical emergency or prior order of the court. She will also be required to wear a scram monitor, which monitors the alcohol with a sensor. It's a fairly sophisticated device and virtually impossible to tamper with. A surety bond requires the entire amount of the bond to be paid before she could be released. The judge also said Komorowski would be required to maintain residence in Charleston County, would have to surrender her passport, and would not be allowed to drive. So have you ever dealt with someone that was on house arrest by any chance? I have not. Well, my my sister was down in Florida, and we visited her at one point in time, and it was crazy how accurate that thing was, like down to down to the foot, really. Like they give you an area that you're allowed to be in or not be in. Mm -hmm. She didn't have to stay necessarily inside of her apartment, 
she was allowed to go out. There was a swimming pool there that she was allowed to take us to. And once a week or once every other week, she was allowed to go to a grocery store and buy food. So this isn't a new thing. They've been using electronic monitoring, as they call it now, or home confinement, home detention throughout history. Galileo is probably the most famous in 1633. That's as far back as we know for sure that these house arrests were going on. For me, it's I mean, it is a bit more it's more humane than sitting in prison or jail, especially in the U.S. where we have such overcrowded prisons. But at the same time, it, it, it's still very limiting. And I think it needs to be treated more as a privilege for nonviolent offenders, people that you aren't afraid are going to commit more crimes or ignore the conditions put on it. Right. Now, adding a scram system to it, scram bracelets are really, really accurate. They can tell that you have had an alcohol level of 0 0.02, which is well below the 0 0.08 limit. And it's very, very, very rare to ever get a false positive off of these. Not to say it's never happened, but this technology is absolutely you know, cutting edge right now. And I think that moving forward in the U.S., you're going to see a lot more of it, as long as you don't get a lot of pushback for denial of personal freedoms and tracking and whatnot, which people in the States tend to really have an issue with. Right. But I do think that people would rather have that than sit in a jail cell. Yeah, probably. So did the sheriff's office get involved with this at all? Yeah. So the sheriff's office issued Kamarowski a tablet at dress out, which has time limits and restrictions on what time of day the tablets can be used. Per the call records, Kamarowski attempted to make 271 calls during her first 23 days in jail. Only 128 calls were completed, and the call lengths about averaged 10 minutes. So at Dress Out, they get these tablets, which is how they make their phone calls. So it's not like sitting at a phone like you would imagine on TV or how they portray it in media. This has got to be a bit new, I would imagine. I and would imagine, too. What a... What a privilege it feels like, you know, that that they would have that. But I can I can see how it would definitely cut down on, you know, the the fighting over the phones, the other forms of of, of violence, just trying to cut it down a bit, I suppose. But and moving inmates to inmates places and things like that. Exactly. And to have 271 calls made during your first one, that's more than 10 a day. Mm -hmm. And. She's completing around six a day, right yeah, at pretty close. So that's incredible. I, I, I don't have that many phone calls and I'm not in jail. So <laughs> right, same. May, maybe she's doing it to pass the time. I can't tell for sure. But again, this just feels like, wow, that is a lot. Yeah. His father stated in jailhouse recordings, we've got the best team to help you. She later said, I just don't know why this had to happen to me. Her father replied, because bad things happen to good people, honey. That's why. It's just fate. Something that happened to you and we are going to deal with it the best we can. And it's life altering. You're going to experience things when it's all over and done with and everything is finished. You're going to be a better person. So they're having these conversations that are recorded as jail conversations are all of them uh, always are yes in their yes. entirety yes and 
I can't imagine sitting through 128 calls to listen to these. I mean, we heard a small snippet of the conversation, not the whole entire conversation, but there's, I can't even imagine having to sit through all of these hours to get footage that we have viewed. I agree with that. I mean, that sounds incredibly tedious, like searching for a needle in a stack of needles, not not yes. necessarily a haystack, but just. But the more that I, why Miss Komorowski is the way she is. He is not encouraging her to take responsibility. He is not encouraging her to feel sympathy or sorrow for the victims. He's saying that sh she's going through what she's going through. Because bad things happen to good people. Well, in reality, she's the bad thing that happened to the good person that was Samantha. Right. This is, it's hard to read and it's hard to hear how out of touch some people can be. Right. She also asked, what if they send me away for a really long time? And her father said, we're trying to avoid that, aren't we? We cannot do anything more than what we're doing. You know what they said about your attorneys, right? She asked what. His response was, the family must be mafia to hire those people. That's just, that's just hubris right there. Especially because, again, they know that these phone calls are recorded. When we would receive calls from my sister, we were always told, well, first off, it was collect. And second, all that everything that we said would be recorded at all times. So not only is he making these statements, he's making these statements knowing that the court's going to hear them. Right. So either yes. he is that out of touch, he has that much hubris, or he has a reason to think that the courts aren't going to pursue this line of, of, of speech. Yes. So did she talk to anybody other than her father while she was there? She did. She did. She spoke to her boyfriend and she said, the deputy sheriff, like the head of the head person of Charleston County, I met with her today and she's trying to help me out. And she's like, I don't want you here. You should be with your family. And she said, so that's really good. So hopefully I can be home sooner. She also said she's the head deputy, whatever. She's really nice, too. I think her name is Kirsten DeMontes or something like that. But she was really nice. And I think she's going to help me. I think things are looking up. Something similar happened, I guess, to someone that she knew personally. And so she related to the story and she was really relating to me and seemed really sincere and really wants to help me. So I'm really happy. Now I'm paraphrasing a lot of this, but uh, she also said she's also the one that got my mom and dad to be able to visit me in person. So, again, this is really, really sounding a lot to me like law enforcement corruption. I'm right. going to go a little bit later. I'll go a bit more into detail about the the sheriff here. Her name is actually Kristen Granziano. So yes. not only did this young lady not take the time to listen to the name of the woman that was helping her, allegedly, but she's simply taking this situation not near serious enough. She sounds right. very flippant. Like you said, you paraphrase a lot of it. Like she would even say, oh, it's whatever. It's blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And those are the literal words she's using to show how much contempt for the situation she has and how yeah. she's sure that if daddy throws money 
and gets me the best team of lawyers that this will be nothing and I'll be out of here. And the sheriff in this case, again, this is allegedly because the tapes and recordings of what has happened with the sheriff's office have not been made public to us yet. But all of this allegedly really points to, yeah, law enforcement's got my back because daddy's an important person and we're going to go forward. And unfortunately, in the in the states and in other countries, corruption is a thing. Right. And we'll so, put the show note in the show notes. We'll put in the full transcript of what she said so you can read all of the likes and the ums and the blah, blah, blahs that she had in there. But I just kind of paraphrased because there was a lot. Now, she does say that the sheriff came to visit her. Is that part of the policy at the county jail there? So policy at Charleston County Jail is that there are no in-person visits with inmates except for lawyers. All visits uh, other than that are done remotely. So not only was the sheriff not supposed to visit, but the family members that have visited are also not supposed to be there. Right. So this sheriff, then, do you have any more information on her? Yeah. So Sheriff Kristen Graziano became the first female sheriff and the first openly gay sheriff to be elected in the state of South Carolina. She originally released the jail call logs to local newspapers after they requested them through a Freedom of Information Act request. However, weeks after the sheriff's office provided the logs to the newspaper, it denied a request from television for the same logs, stating counsel and other interested parties a concern that that similar record releases would materially interfere with the administration of justice. So what they're referring to is the Freedom of Information Act, which was passed to help stop law enforcement agencies and government agencies in general from protecting themselves by refusing access to information that the media or citizens should have access to. You can submit a request for almost anything to your government agencies and your law enforcement agencies requesting information, transcripts phone records and whatnot. However, there are a lot, and I do mean a lot of loopholes that they can use to try and get around that. Some of them being, if it would cost too much or take too much staff time to deal with the request, if the request is vexatious, if the request repeats a previous request from the same person, which is what they tried to do in this situation, even though it wasn't necessarily the same person, They said that since it was media people, that that was enough and that if they kept on doing this, it would take time away from pursuing cases and administering justice as needs to be done. And that asking for it again was superfluous, even though it absolutely was not. Right. So was there any action taken against the sheriff's office for this? There was. Gray Media sued the Charleston County Sheriff's Department, alleging the refusal to provide the audio recordings violated the South Carolina Freedom of Information Act. The suit asked for the sheriff to provide the requested information, as well as reasonable attorney fees and other legal costs. On August 7, 2023, a judge ruled that the calls to be public record and ordered Charleston County Sheriff's Office to pay $33,175 to cover the legal fees of Gray Media Group. After the calls were released, the Charleston County, South Carolina Sheriff's Department made a public statement. Sheriff Graziano is in the agency's detention centers often. 
and is also not unusual for her to visit jail residents. Omorowski is not an exception, and the sheriff met with her one time and had brief in-person contact with her a second time to introduce her to CCSO Mental Health Director William Malcolm, whose responsibility involves visiting detention center residents to ensure various needs are met. The sheriff does not have a special relationship with Komorowski's attorney. It is a professional relationship. What has been surmised by some from the Komorowski's video calls is not accurate in regard to any sort of special treatment. Some may think this situation is special, but it is not. So these calls could be used as evidence later or during sentencing, but right now they're just they've just been made public to the media and things like that. Right. That's that's what I was referring to earlier, how we don't have access to that information yet. I will say, however, oftentimes if you smell a rat, you find a rat. Right. There's a lot of people and a lot of media that are inferring things. And while trusting the mainstream media at face value can at times be dangerous, it is important to remember that the media's main job is to put out information, hopefully non-biased and hopefully accurate. And most of what I have seen has done exactly that in this case. This, to me, does absolutely seem like a special situation. The sheriff does not deny that she has a relationship with the young woman's attorney, but she says it's not special, that it's professional. That can be taken any number of ways. Everything that is made in this statement for me is very generalized. There's no concrete reason to believe anything one way or the other. And the reason that I believe that they worded it this way is because it gives them plausible deniability. The, oh. the, the sheriff's office can distance itself from the sheriff itself or from the situation itself because they haven't committed to anything in their statement. Yeah. But the call can be used as evidence later or during sentencing. I do believe that once the trial kicks off and begins that these things will be obviously made public unless they do a closed trial, which is absolutely possible. But I'm hoping that that's not the case. We'll have to see how that goes. Were there any other suits filed in this case? Yes. In May of 2023, Eric filed wrongful death lawsuits against Kamarowski and the bars that served her that day. The lawsuit against the businesses states that she was visibly intoxicated and that they didn't know when to cut her off from drinking. The amounts in the settlement have not been made public, though they will pay a third of the total settlement in lawyers' fees and any additional relief ruled by the judge. So it's not public yet, but they have been a few settlements. I worked in gastronomy for a lot of years, mostly back of house. I was a kitchen hand and worked my way up to executive chef. That said, I worked hand-in-hand with the bartenders a lot of times. We had to take a lot of the same classes where they would instruct you on how to tell when it was time to cut the customer off. And maybe I was just fortunate to work with a lot of really, really, really good bartenders that took their job very, very seriously. I understand that in a situation like this, where it's touristy season, things are popping, Lots of business going on. Maybe you're not paying attention, but 
that's one of the reasons you're there. The bartender is there to serve drinks in a safe environment and to make sure that people are being safe in their consumption of alcohol, not just to try and make as much money as possible for himself and for the business. So I do think that it's appropriate. Did you ever work in gastronomy? I did not. Um, well, I guess I did. Technically, I worked I worked as a hostess for about a week and then I was like, this is not for me. <laughs> it is. T- it does take a, a certain type. You have to be a little masochistic to yeah. want to be in gastronomy because, oh boy. Yeah, we'll just we'll go with that. But yeah. I do I do feel as though a bit of justice was done there. We will have to see how the wrongful death lawsuit against Komorowski goes, of course, to see what they did with the bars. I approve, obviously, but that does also, I think, in my mind, point to some bit of fault that this young woman had in this case and some blame that could be laid at her feet. We'll have to see how it goes, but it, I mean, the the evidence and whatnot seems to be pointing in a very, very clear direction to me. Yes. Now, I had heard recently that Sheriff Graziano has actually announced her bid for re-election for 2024. Yeah, she did. She announced it in August of 2023. So I feel as though I have put some mud on the sheriff's name. And to be absolutely fair to her, There are things that she has done that are incredibly impressive. As you mentioned, she is the first female sheriff and the first openly gay sheriff to be elected in the state of South Carolina. For our international listeners, South Carolina is a very conservative state. We call it a red state because they vote Republicans who are typically associated with the color red, whereas Democrats are blue. And she ran as a Democrat. And she ran against the sheriff incumbent, Al Cannon, who had been there for 32 years. He'd been there since 1988. She had worked for him previously. And when she announced that she would run against him, he actually decided to place her on unpaid administrative leave until the election was over. A lot of people didn't think that was right. Might have been a swaying and deciding factor. The election was really close. She won 52 to 48. And then she started to announce some very progressive policies to ban chokeholds and to ban no-knock warrants. And she specifically said that she was swayed on that because of the terrible tragedy that befell Breonna Taylor, Mm -hmm. who was murdered in her apartment by police executing a no-knock warrant. So that being said, This does not excuse any of her corruption, but I feel that it's important to paint a full picture of this person that is involved deeply in this case so that you can understand, again, the full picture. She may not be corrupt. This may have totally been what the sheriff's office has put out. But until we get that information, we don't know. And. What we do here is we take the information we have and we do a bit of theory crafting and we do speculate. So for me, I'm seeing a high probability. And so that's what I'm going to call out. That being said, have Samantha or Eric's family said anything else? Yeah. So they asked that in lieu of flowers that everyone make donate donations to Mothers Against Drunk Driving. 
and a GoFundMe was set up and garnered over $730,000. And we'll definitely be putting a link to Mothers Against Drunk Driving in the show notes on the website. So if you do feel moved to do so, please go ahead and donate. They do do good work. It's definitely, definitely something worth looking at. And as, as we stated, this case is ongoing, so there will be more information to come, more things to put in your pin board. If you come across anything else, feel free to leave some comments and let us know what you've thought. Maybe you have some interesting theory crafting as well. Maybe you came across a tidbit of information that would absolutely swing our minds on this, and we'd love to give you credit for it. So, Rebel... I think it's about that time of the episode where we discuss our missing person of the week. I think you're right. So who Um, do we have this week? This week we have Devin Demon Atkinson. He was last seen on September 20th, 2022 at around 12 p.m. around the 1000 block of Newkirk Drive in Richmond, Virginia. He left a home where his children and their mother live, taking a change of clothes with him. Devin may be driving a gray 2002 Chevrolet Tahoe with Virginia license plate number TVS4216. He left all his other belongings behind, and the mother of his young daughter stated that she didn't think he would have abandoned his child voluntarily. He is a black man, 31 years old. He is six foot one and approximately 165 pounds. He was last seen wearing a white tank top, gray sweatpants, black socks, and black slides. He was carrying a bag containing a gray American Eagle hoodie and tan khaki pants. He has an unspecified medical condition. Devin has tattoos on both arms. One is of the names Ariana and Grayson, and the other is of the is of a woman on a pole. He has the name Jess tattooed on his ring finger. At the time, he had a disagreement with a family member, but it is unknown if this was a factor in the disappearance. So he's been missing now for just over two years. Just over a year. Just over a year. Yes. Yes. So September 20th, 2022 to 2023. Yes, I will learn math someday, I promise. (laughs) So apparently the family still can't talk very well to the daughter about her father. They can't use the word missing because it just rips his daughter apart. She's desperate to see her dad and she's at an age. She's about five years old now. She's missing her dad. She wants to find her dad. If yeah. anybody out there has seen anything or knows anything, who should they contact? They should contact the Richmond Police Department at 804-646-5100. And if you're worried about anything, you can always make tips anonymously. Crime Stoppers will also allow you to do that, as will your local law enforcement agencies. Again, anything that you know is helpful. Help this little girl find her dad. Yes. Well, Rebel, this has been a twisting and turning event, I feel, today. Yeah, it's been, all, it's been a good case. And still more to follow. That's, that's the big thing. We aren't, even, we aren't even finished yet. So right. hopefully this goes to trial soon, though. The judge has stated that he doesn't want it to wait until March. So right. I think that that would be best for all involved, including the perpetrator, not just the victims, but just to get it out there and get it over and done with. Yeah, I agree. So where can our listeners find our podcasts if they want to tell their friends or family members to listen in? All right. So we're hosted on Podbean and most of the places that you can hear podcasts on Spotify, Apple, iHeart, 
You can find us there. You can always email us murderosity at gmail.com for new cases or missing persons cases, or just leave us a comment or questions, anything like that. You can reach out to us and we are more than happy to respond there. You can also follow us on most of the social media sites at Murderosity. And we're very, very happy to give out any information. We take comments seriously. We're happy to engage with anybody that wants to on those platforms as well. Most definitely. Well, Rebel, this has been fun. And do you have anything else that you'd like to say to our listeners before we go? Nope, I think I'm all good for tonight. All right. Well, you guys stay safe out there. Don't end up on our podcast. And we'll see you next week.